The story takes place a few years ago. I was meeting this guy that I had just started seeing. We were going on a date, but earlier in the day, it was my dad's 75th birthday. Now, in hindsight, I shouldn't have double booked myself, but I did. So I was up in my parents' house for the for the birthday. And because it was a big birthday, all of his siblings had come. So it made it a little harder to leave because everyone, you know, wants to say goodbye and to see me and to ask me questions. And so I was trying to sneak out of there really quickly because I had to get back downtown to go on my date. And as always in these kinds of situations, everything that could have gone wrong kind of did. So I was... I left a little later than I had hoped to, and then I got stuck in traffic on the drive down. It took twice as long to get back to my apartment than it normally does, and I had to go to my apartment to drop the car off to get onto the subway to meet him at the movie theater. Because of all these circumstances, I was running late. We were supposed to meet prior to the movie, but because I was running late, I was letting him know what was going on. I was keeping him updated on part of where I was at in an attempt to give him my ETA. I was frustrated and I was anxious because one, I hate to be late. And two, I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So I don't like to disappoint people. And three, I was going on a date with a guy that I really liked and I didn't want to screw things up, I guess, is basically what my anxious state was indicating. So I was nervous and I was frustrated. I was upset. And worried about how he was feeling with me being late. Now, while some of it was in my control, you know, leaving my parents' house, a lot of this was out of my control. Like once events were set in motion, there wasn't too much that I could do after the fact. I finally got to the theater. He looked a little annoyed, but I apologized again. You know, I explained what was going on and he seemed to take things in stride. The movie hadn't started yet so we got our tickets we you know got our seats we settled in the way he was talking to me everything seemed kind of fine after i had apologized and arrived he didn't seem to be annoyed didn't seem to be frustrated didn't seem to be mad we didn't talk too much about the fact that i was late we chatted before the movie started we enjoyed the movie everything seemed to be going well after the movie ended we were exiting the theater i told him that i was going to use the washroom before Continuing on with our date, he said that was fine, that he would wait for me outside. Okay. Went into the washroom, did my stuff, and came out, and he was gone. And at that moment, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh. My first initial thought was, oh, he was madder than he let on. In that moment, I felt like he was so mad that I was late. And I, I mean, I was late, but I, I wasn't even that late. Not that I'm trying to make excuses, but to explain how caught off guard I was that he left. I checked my phone. There wasn't a text from him. I thought how much I had screwed things up with this guy that I really kind of liked and was hoping to see where things would go with him and that he'd ghosted, that he just was so mad that I had been late to meet him that he left without saying anything. Like he never said goodbye. There was no text message. There was nothing. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, how much I screwed things up that, you know, I really upset this man that I liked and now things are over and we're never going to go out again. And all of this stuff is running through my head, all these thoughts and these worries. And then he walked out of the men's room. Hi, I'm Charlene, a registered psychotherapist, mindfulness meditator, anxiety coach, lifelong anxiety sufferer and brain injury survivor. And this is Calm Amidst the Chaos. And today 
we are talking about catastrophizing. That story I was sharing, obviously, like from when I walked out of the bathroom to when he walked out of the bathroom, it's like two minutes and so much was going on inside of my head and inside of my body in those two minutes. I mean, initially I was just stunned. I was stunned and anxious and like, oh my gosh, he left. Like that, that was my immediate thought that he was so mad that he left. And I couldn't believe, like, if he was this mad, why didn't he just leave at the start of the date? Why didn't he say something? How can I fix this? And I was like, then he'll never see me again. And you can tell I really like this guy. And how quickly anxiety just takes over and can spiral out of control. Now, at the time of the story, I was working as a therapist. I was in therapy for a few years, had been practicing mindfulness for a few years, And yet anxiety and the worry loop that I've talked about in previous episodes just kicks in so quickly that fight or flight kicks in so fast that my thoughts started to spiral out of control and he had just gone to the washroom. He wasn't mad. I created this whole scenario inside of my head. The date continued. I didn't share with him my catastrophizing thoughts. The date continued. Things went well. We dated for a few months. We ended up, things didn't work out between the two of us. We since broke up. I've had nothing to do with that one date that I was late on. And looking back at this, this moment in time, I just remember thinking like how quickly I went to the worst case scenario. If my friend had been telling me this story or one of my clients, I would have talked about, you know, the the other possible outcomes, you know, that he had gone to the washroom, but it never occurred to me in that moment. And obviously, from like, it was like two minutes from when I walked out of the bathroom to when he walked out of the bathroom. Like, it wasn't like I sat there for 20 minutes, but we don't need, like, it's, we're talking seconds, this fight or flight kicks in. It was so fast. And I went from zero to 60 in like a blink of an eye. I can only imagine, like, if, now, now, if I was the kind of person who fight or flight comes turns into a fight, like, and he had taken another two minutes to come out of that bathroom, I could have very easily have gone into fight mode, picking up the phone, texting him, how dare he ghost me, like, you know, spitting out all this kinds of vitriol at him. And then he walks out of the bathroom like, huh? Which is why I'm sharing this story to remind you, me, us, how important it is to be mindful, to take a moment, to stop, to think, to notice what's going on inside of us, outside of us, and to choose how we want to respond from that place, right? When he came out of the bathroom and I saw where he was and I I had that moment of like, I'm an idiot. I was able to stop, to breathe, to regulate my nervous system, to calm down and to let go of the anxiety-inducing state that I had just been in because everything was fine. Things were fine. I I was fine. He was fine. We were fine. And I could move forward in our date from that place versus staying in that anxious place and walking on eggshells and tiptoeing around this situation and like wondering what's the next thing I'm going to do that's going to screw things up, right? I, I, I don't want to live in that state. And this is what mindfulness has helped me to do to recognize like, whoa, I let things get out of control in that moment for myself, right? This was all internal. He hadn't a clue what was going on. But I also made the choice to let it go and to move forward. 
I also, I'm not someone who is typically late. So that was the one and only time that I'd been late for a date, which is also why it didn't become a big thing. I mean, if I was always late, it would have, but I'm not. So it didn't. It was just a one-off and we all have one-offs leave a little late, stuck in traffic. I mean, he was totally understanding when I told him where I was at, like he knew. And we we're both kind of like, oh, I probably should have scheduled the movie for another night, you know, in hindsight, do things a little differently, but it wasn't a thing. He wasn't mad and I catastrophized. So what is catastrophizing? Catastrophizing is when someone focuses on the worst thing that can happen at any given moment in time. Often, this type of thinking involves magnifying small problems and imagining circumstances are much worse than reality or expecting the worst possible outcome in any given situation. Like coming out of the washroom, seeing your date gone and assuming that he's ghosted you and that things are over. I mean, I look like I look back and be like, man, that that was a wild thought process. And when we catastrophize, when, and when we catastrophize, we magnify problems or imagine the worst outcomes. We think in extremes and feel burdened with a worry that we can't control. And there are strategies to help us to manage catastrophizing, including mindfulness, which is what we're going to talk about today. And we don't really understand, and researchers have theorized theorized around why we we engage in catastrophic thinking, but we don't really know why. It might come from trauma or other underlying health conditions. And for some people, catastrophizing is a coping mechanism that has been learned over time. And it may be easy to dismiss catastrophizing as over-exaggeration, but most of the time the behavior is not intentional. And people who catastrophize often don't realize they are doing so. They may just feel burdened with a worry they cannot control. Like in that moment, I didn't realize I was catastrophizing. I had just was like, this is the likely outcome of this situation. It was only obviously in hindsight that I was like, well, that was catastrophic thinking. And it can be a symptom of anxiety, depression, insomnia, and chronic pain. Now I experience chronic pain. I get migraines and they last for days. Like literally my last one was five days worth of migraines. It's, it sucks. But I can and have engaged in catastrophic thinking with this is the worst. I've never felt so bad. This is always going to be the case. Who's going to want to, you know, all these thoughts kept showing up. And I talk about the idea of the two arrows. So the first arrow is the inevitable pains of life. And for me, migraines are a first arrow. I get them often. The second arrow is our thoughts, judgments, resistance to the first arrow. And this one is optional. So those thoughts, those judgments, the second arrow that was I kept slinging at myself every time that I got a migraine around how I've never felt so terrible. This is the worst. It's always going to be like this. It's, this is, you know, they would just keep going and going and going. And then I remember one day I was experiencing migraine, was feeling really sick because I also get nauseous, which is, you know, double the fun. And this second arrow kept slinging and I was like, oh, here it is. Like I noticed, and I'd been teaching at this time for years. I've been talking about mindfulness for years, practicing for years. And still, here's something new, this new piece of the puzzle that I need to accept. Because these thoughts don't help the situation. They don't make my migraine feel better. 
they just make me feel even worse because now I feel even crummier on top of feeling nauseous and having a migraine. And when I started practicing acceptance towards my migraines, started noticing the thoughts when they show up and to let them go, um, engaging in this other practice, I talk about checking the facts because no matter how bad my migraine are, they will never be the worst they've ever been because the worst they've ever been was immediately after getting hit by the bus when I was hooked up to an IV of morphine. I mean, if I can manage and get some relief, at least for a little while, on a prescription med and over-the-counter meds, clearly it's never as bad as when I had an IV of morphine. So checking the facts, acceptance, I utilize these skills in those moments and they, they help the migraines. I mean, the migraines still suck and they're still awful, but I don't have the extra added layer of the thoughts and the judgments that just make me feel terrible, that bring down my emotions on top of the pain that I'm experiencing. And chronic pain and the thoughts that go with it is one form of catastrophizing mentioned anxiety is another we're always worrying about the worst case and this this next thing is going to happen and you know taking these mountains and making no sorry taking molehills and turning them into mountains or as i talked about in another episode the lion and the mouse or or the rock and the lion you know i see this rock in the distance and i'm worried that it's going to be a lion and it's going to eat me and i you know, make decisions from that place we always want to come back to this moment to noticing, okay, so what's showing up in my body? What are the thoughts that I'm having? What are the emotions connected to them? Where are they showing up in my body? Because it helps. It helps us to manage when catastrophic thinking shows up. Now, I've had two bone infections, unfortunately. And because I've had two bone infections, I am at a higher risk of having additional bone infections which sucks. And I know this, which sucks. I, after the first bone infection, I thought it was just this completely, you know, sort of random thing. I never expected it to happen again. And then it did. And ignorance is bliss in that circumstance. But now I know it can happen again because it did. And my doctors told me that I'm at a higher risk of it happening again. So I know this and I have this, you know, in my body. And they were watching me very closely after they put in the new prosthesis in case there was complications, in case there was additional signs of infection, because I'd had, I'd had a lot of problems over this time period. And I had picked up a few other infections that thankfully were treated and everything's fine. And so now that I'm over a year with this new prosthesis, my odds of infection have decreased, but haven't disappeared. And so there's anxiety around this. And every time there's, you know, something that doesn't feel right, there's that worry. There's always that underlying worry. Is this, this is there, is there going to be another one? And after the surgery, when I was waiting for things to heal, and my doctor was very concerned and watched me very closely, it fed a lot of this anxiety. And I engaged in a lot of catastrophic thinking. I had this one scar on the side, like the temple, and it's, small. It was just like one or two stitches. And there was 
there was this like thing, like a, there was a spot there and I was convinced that it was my prosthesis, that it was exposed, that there was a problem, that there was going to be a new infection introduced. I was having a lot of panic attacks, a lot of fear, a lot of fear, a lot of worry around this, this spot. And I was convinced that it was like, my anxiety was convinced that the prosthesis was exposed. And a lot of this was fed from my doctor. A few weeks prior, I had seen my doctor and he was very anxious. And the spot hadn't shown up yet, but it was around the holidays and he was going out west to see his family. And he shared with me that even though he's going to be in a different time zone, he wanted to be consulted before any decisions were made. And I was like, oh my God, does he see something that I don't, does he know something that I don't know? So anxious. And then the spot appeared and now I'm extra anxious and he's gone away and it's over the holidays and I'm having panic attacks. And I was still, I was undergoing hyperbaric oxygen therapy at this time to remove any possible infections to kind of give me the best odds moving forward after the prosthesis went in. And I was seeing there was a doctor at that clinic, but I was so anxious. I was too anxious to even talk to him to let him see it. My anxiety was telling me this is the prosthesis. There's going to be infection. Problems are going to show up. But my eyes were like, no, it's not. It was because it, because here's the thing, this, like the spot that I was seeing, it was something that was kind of like, it, it's hard to explain, but the thing was, there was like, it was on top of the skin, meaning like it couldn't possibly be the prosthesis because like one tiny speck of the prosthesis couldn't somehow be over the skin. I mean, my prosthesis is basically like it's one piece of plastic. Like there, like, well, like there was no way that this was possible that it was the prosthesis, but my anxiety was like, nope, it's prosthesis. My eyes kept telling it, no, this, this is okay. Like this is fine. Nope, it's prosthesis. And so I was having a lot of panic attacks and I do have an anti-anxiety medication that I take as needed. So a couple of times I had to take it, especially because while my breathing practices and my self-talk and coaching do help me manage my panic attacks, I had one on the morning that I was going for HBOT and my, like my hyperbaric treatments were first thing in the morning and you're basically sealed into a glass tube for 90 minutes. So panic, being in a state of panic is not the ideal way to go into one of these treatments. So I had to take my anti-anxiety medication that I take as needed to help me manage my panic attacks because this calming self-talk and the breathing practices helped, but didn't get rid of it. And so I was navigating like a couple of weeks there with this can like this catastrophic thinking, this anxiety that like this, this is terrible. This is, this is exposed, this is the prosthesis, this, that, and the other. And it, and it wasn't, it was like a piece of skin, I guess. I don't know, whatever it, the thing fell off and there was like healed skin underneath. It was as my eyes kept trying to tell my anxiety, nothing is wrong here, but my anxiety was hearing nothing. It was having none of it. It was like, nope. This is, this is, this is it. 
we're going to have to undergo another surgery. And then like that, like, it's not just one more surgery. Like they'd have to remove the prosthesis and then they'd have to wait a while. Like it was the whole thing. And it was nothing. It was just a bit of dried skin. But my anxiety was just that overwhelmed. My system was so overwhelmed from all the trauma the last few years that it was convinced that it was the end of days. And this is how trauma and anxiety can lead to catastrophizing. Now, thankfully, now, thankfully, catastrophic thinking is treatable through therapy, through mindfulness, medication, and self-care, all of which I do. And I can tell you from experience, it has helped immensely. Now, I still engage in catastrophic thinking. Obviously, I just described an example of it. But because of the skills, the toolkit that I've created, the strategies that I teach in my programs, I'm able to move through it quicker and I don't engage in it as much as, as I did during that time when things were so just so much upheaval and so much up in the air and it was so terrifying. Now there has been some research done into catastrophic thinking in particular with people who also have chronic pain. And so some of this reaches, some of this reach, wow. Some of this research has suggested that these individuals may have some alterations in their hypothalamus and pituitary responses, as well as increased activity in the parts of the brain that register emotions associated with pain. And the hypothalamus and pituitary glands are involved in our flight or fight or flight response, which is when a rush of hormones can tense your muscles, raise your blood pressure, and spike your heart rate. If activated, the fight-or-flight response could lead to fear or anxiety over everyday events. Alternately, the amygdala and hippocampus regions of the brain involved in memory recall and emotion could be the source of the negative thoughts, or the source could be the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for complex thinking and personality. So there are a few things that they're still studying to kind of figure out what is the cause, but those are a few possibilities. So what are some common signs of catastrophizing? Well, there are many. Among them are persistent anxiety and worry, repeating and running through the same thoughts over and over, feeling despair or helplessness over decision or situation, and overthinking everyday situations or past events. Similarly, feeling overwhelmed as a result of fear or anger is a sign of catastrophizing. So is Nate. So is thinking negative thoughts about yourself. One small thought could lead to a spiral of overthinking and anxious thoughts. Common examples of catastrophic thinking include ruminations, such as when I was talking about the catastrophic thinking and the ruminating with regards to the chronic pain that I feel. Oh, this is awful and it's always going to be this way. And, well, you know, how I'm such a burden to everybody in my life that I get so sick and I, you know, all this stuff. Or it can be like, thinking I'm going to fail my test and I'm going to get kicked out of school. No one's ever going to like me. I can't stop thinking about how awkward I sounded that, in a, that other night. Like when you say something stupid, which is a judgment or embarrassing, which is also a judgment. And you keep reliving it in your head. Oh my goodness. No one's ever, who's ever going to want to be my friend when I constantly say and do such stupid things, right? All of this, this ruminating is catastrophizing at the same time. And like as I said, anxiety brings up a lot of catastrophizing. It definitely has for me. And anxiety can be an umbrella term for many common mental health conditions. We've talked about this before, how it, anxiety involves 
feeling of dread, worry, or fear over everyday circumstances, like I'm late for a date and he's never going to want to talk to me again. People with painful conditions who have high levels of anxiety over their pain are prone to pain catastrophizing. There isn't a lot of research linking catastrophizing to anxiety in the absence of pain. However, a study done in 2015 of teenagers found that higher levels of catastrophizing were linked to anxiety disorders. Now, catastrophizing doesn't just happen with pain, but pain catastrophizing can cause people to feel helpless, to dwell on the idea of their pain, and to magnify the physical experience, which is why I'm talking about it, right? If I, like, because I get such migraines and they last for so long, like, if I catastrophize around my pain and I focus on it and it causes a lot more anxiety and I might feel like this is always going to be the case and this is always going to be my life and I might give up and I might not try different things. Like, right now... I work with a neurologist and we're trying a new daily med to see if that helps. I'm at the time that I'm recording this episode, it's day one. So I have no idea. I just started taking it, but I'm giving that a try. I'm working with a nutritionist to see if making dietary changes can assist. Now we were just talking about catastrophizing with regards to chronic pain and some of the signs and depression is one of the most common mental health conditions worldwide. I myself have been diagnosed with major depression disorder or MDD and it co-occurs with other conditions involving catastrophizing including chronic pain conditions and anxiety. So basically me in a nutshell. Catastrophizing is also linked with difficulty sleeping. In this case the catastrophizing thoughts are about insomnia. High levels of catastrophizing could make it more difficult for people to fall asleep and stay asleep. And in some cases, the and in some cases, the disturbing thoughts are linked to anxiety. Now, I um right after the accident, the first accident, right after the first accident, I had a lot of anxiety. It was like I was anxious all the time, and so I had trouble sleeping. And a lot of my anxiety occurred at bedtime because. I was lying down and I was still, and so that's when the thoughts started to to ramp up and I would catastrophize and I'd worry and I overthink and it would keep me awake. Over the years, I've had bouts of, I wouldn't say insomnia, but trouble sleeping, whether it's because of pain, I can't get comfortable where I'm at with the surgeries. And, and when you're struggling with falling asleep and staying asleep, it's very easy for our thoughts to start to it's very easy to start to ruminate and to worry and to make things bigger when you can't sleep and you start to feel like you're never going to fall asleep especially when it's a like a few days in a row and that's when the catastrophizing starts so it's important to notice when these things are showing up when you're catastrophizing with regards to insomnia to pain to anxiety or depression to when you're ruminating gets out of control and starts to spiral i remember years ago i was having a conversation with a person with one of my clients and they were talking about you know and so many of us have been in this situation where you you send a text and the person you can see that it's been delivered you can see that it's read the thought bubble pops up with the, th- you know, the bubble with the three thoughts indicating that they're typing a message and then it goes away and you never get a message. And you start to wonder like, what happened? You start to catastrophize. You start to overthink and you start to second guess, you start to ruminate. And you, it could get to this point where you're catastrophizing. Like, 
what's going on? What happened? We were just talking. Did I do something? Did I screw up? And maybe, maybe he's seeing somebody else. And maybe he's got this whole, like, you know, the thoughts just go from like zero to 60. And now you've created this whole scenario inside of your head. Like she shared that like her thoughts got so out of control that she started to think that the guy that she was dating that, you know, had sent the message and didn't reply that, that maybe they were seeing somebody else and maybe they were married and maybe, you know, they had this whole other family. And then they, she realized like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm catastrophizing. I've taken this thing and I've created this entirely false scenario inside of my head. Because she knew that he didn't have this whole second family because she's like, I see him all the time. Like he wouldn't have the time to have this secret family. He just didn't respond to a text and my anxiety blew it out of control. She was able to, to notice, to recognize, to take her mindfulness practice, pull out some of these tools and to regulate herself so that she didn't blow up the situation and make things worse. This is what mindfulness helps us to do. Through a combination of therapy, mental health skills, and other support, it may be possible to stop or reduce this pattern of negative thinking. So something like talk therapy. Now, Many types of therapy may be helpful, but they've really only done studies with regards to pain catastrophizing. One of the most effective therapy types is cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, which helps reframe your negative thought patterns and behaviors. And it has been shown that it may lead to small improvements in catastrophizing. Another type is acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. This form of treatment helps a person feel more comfortable with, with discomfort and anxiety. ACT may help break the cycle of intrusive thoughts, although more research is needed. A third option is, is, a third option is dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. This form of therapy is modeled on CBT. However, it puts more emphasis on self-acceptance and learning to regulate emotions, but, and more research is needed to determine whether it is effective for catastrophizing. Now, I am a psychotherapist who engages in talk therapy, but I was also trained in, well, I wasn't trained in CBT, but I was also trained in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And a lot of what I teach these days in my programs is dialectical behavior therapy. I really liked it because it's skills-based, but there's also a huge mindfulness component. And I found for me and for a lot of my clients that came through when I was as a therapist, they also really benefited from it. And they found that it was especially helpful for them. And they could really see the results by the end of our program. Now, while I'm not currently working and taking clients as a psychotherapist, I'm not currently actively teaching dialectical behavior therapy as in the 12-week program. I do, in my coaching practice, teach some of the skills from DBT as well as a lot of mindfulness skills to help people Learn how to heal their anxiety, especially when it comes to people with chronic illnesses or invisible disabilities. Because talk therapy is great. I love talk therapy. I'm in talk therapy. I see a social worker regularly. I worked as a psychotherapist. I'm obviously a huge fan. But sometimes it can leave us being a little like, okay, so now what? Like, I know I have anxiety. I know I have depression. So or I know I engage in catastrophic thinking. So now what? Like, what do I do now? And that's where my coaching comes in and the programs that I have. Because the, the, I teach the skills to help you to regulate your emotions in the moment. To help you to notice when you're engaging in ruminating or catastrophic thinking and how to stop it. 
these are just some of the things that I've been working with my clients on learning how to do because stuff like as I shared at the top of this episode with the the date that I was on, like how quickly things can just spiral. And if I had, if I hadn't been doing this work for years, if I didn't have the skills that I teach and that I practice regularly, I could have, I could have made things so much worse for myself and for him. Like, can you imagine if I just stuck in, stayed in that, in that anxious catastrophic state, what my, how my body would have felt like when I get anxious, I get nauseous. And so now I'm running to the bathroom to go puke because I couldn't stop catastrophizing. And like, sure, he hasn't left yet, but I bet he's still mad and he's going to say something later, or maybe he's going to, you know, end the day and then he's going to ghost, right? Like none of that happened. He wasn't mad. I mean, he was probably annoyed because nobody likes to wait, but it wasn't a thing and I could have made it a thing. And so this is why it's important to notice our thoughts and how they can affect us. Another way to stop catastrophic thinking is with anti-anxiety medications. As I've touched on, I have a PRN or an as-needed anti-anxiety meds that I use sometimes, especially when I'm having a lot of panic attacks. And this can be helpful when therapy on its own doesn't work. There have been times when I've, I've you know, like I've been in therapy for 10 years and I've been like, you know what, I, I need more. This isn't enough. And so I've gone on medications or like there was a period of time where I was on antidepressants and that helped, but it got to a point where I was like, it stunted all of my emotions. So I never felt overwhelm overwhelmingly sad, but I also like didn't feel happy. Like I could watch a comedy and it was like, like the things that I would normally laugh at, I wasn't. And, and before going on the meds, I would have. So they got me over the hump that I needed. This is when various times when things were just really um, out of control during my health cycle. And so then I went, I went off of it and felt better. Like for me, it did what it, it served its purpose and then I didn't need it anymore, but that's not the case for everybody. I just want to share that. So you are like, I'm not like, I'm not telling people don't go on meds, but meds can help, especially you can be in therapy. You can be taking meds. You can find that like, this is helpful, but you need more. And that's where some of the skills come in like mindfulness. And obviously, obviously I'm a big fan. Practicing mindfulness can be effective for treating catastrophizing. Because it helps us to stay in the moment and to experience our thoughts in an open and non-judgmental manner. Now, one mindfulness class isn't isn't going to do it. I shared I've been teaching for years and I still engage in this stuff, and so I have to go back and I have to keep practicing it. It helps, but you have to, it's something you have to keep doing. This technique has helped people to accept ca- catastrophic. Ooh, wow, this word. This technique helps people accept catastrophizing thoughts without overthinking. This is why I'm such a huge component of mindfulness. It helps me to recognize when I'm catastrophizing. It helps me to stop overthinking. It helps me to stop judging myself for the judgments, for the overthinking, for the catastrophizing. It helps me feel so much more at ease in my body and in my life when things are out of control. And if you've listened to episode one, you have a small understanding of how out of control things have been for me and my life. It has helped me a lot. Another thing that I also use, and it's helped for myself, but I've also recommended as a therapist, is journaling. When I write down my thoughts, it allows me to like to really look at them, to notice them. 
helps me to recognize patterns by noticing like, hey, every time this happens, I think this these kinds of thoughts. And just for me, putting things down on paper gets them out of my head. It's why I'm a big fan of to-do lists and brain dumping and just getting everything out of my head and down onto paper. But one of the main things to that's important with regards to catastrophizing is that it's important to try to accept uncertainty. This is what mindfulness has helped me to do. It has helped me to learn how to, to be in these moments of complete uncertainty. I shared, I'm at risk for another bone infection. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is and I don't want to, but I know that it can happen again. Also, that if you had one brain injury, you're more likely to have more brain injuries. And I've already had two brain injuries. So like, there's all these things that just like, kind of like these, these thoughts, these statistics that kind of linger in my head that like pop up and I don't want to feed these thoughts. I want to let them just go. That's what I do. And I notice when they show up again, it's like, right. So this like, yeah, I'm at a higher risk, but, but right now I'm fine. Right now there is no infection. And if, and when that happens, then I'll, I'll deal with it then. I'll worry about it then. And some mindfulness and some of the practices that, it, that I teach help us learn how to spend time just sitting with these uncertain thoughts and trying to accept their unpredictable quality to learn how to accept that that discomfort, that feeling in our bellies. Well, for me, it's my belly. Sometimes it's like right down low in my stomach, like a rock that just sits there. Or sometimes anxiety can show up as this, it feels like a, a scream inside of my solar plexus region that just wants to get out, or I just want to run out of my skin, out of my body and just run away. But that's kind of impossible. And so learning how to sit with it, like, okay, so this is what I'm feeling. I want to get up and I want to run. All right. Let me just take a couple of breaths and to just, to just sit and to be, I don't have to like this feeling to sit with it, to learn and to practice acceptance around this. I do it all the time and it helps. It makes these moments a little easier. Some people can also engage in like, what if thinking using like testing out different catastrophic thoughts to understand their consequences. Like, well, what if this happened? Like, what if, like, what if that, that night, that date, what if he hadn't just gone to the bathroom? What if he had left? What would have been the worst that could have happened? Well, then we wouldn't have gone out again. And, you know, that can seem devastating in the moment, but ultimately it's not. And engaging in some of this, like, okay, so what is the worst case? Like, I'm having catastrophic anxious thoughts about this situation. If I mindfully engage in, okay, so what if, what if this came to pass? What would happen next? What would be the worst case scenario? What are all the possible consequences of this? Now, this can be therapeutic because it can help us to challenge some of our fears and worries, but also very mindful of of recognizing that sometimes this what if thinking can lead to anxiety because we can feed our anxiety. So that's why I mentioned doing it sort of mindfully, coming back to the breath, noticing like, hey, now I'm starting to spiral. Now I need to stop. It's always important to notice how our thoughts impact our emotions, how our emotions impact our thoughts, how it shows up in our body as sensations and how it shows up in our actions. 
want to recognize every time we start to ruminate. Oh, I'm doing it again. I like to sometimes when I start to engage in catastrophic thinking, like, whoa, Gethins, I speak to myself in the third person. Like it takes these thoughts and it kind of makes it like it's somebody else it's outside of me. So it's not me, creates a bit of space, a bit of a buffer. And so even just that, and it takes a lot of the pressure off because like now it's like my thoughts are separate. They're not me. It's just a thought. And thoughts are not facts, right? So I can look at it and I can notice it and be like, whoa, Gethin, you've just taken this thing and you've created this whole alternative scenario. Like, you don't know that this is true. And coming back to the facts. So what what do I know that's true in this moment? Like when I talked about with the, the stitch that was, was healing, but was taking a bit longer and I was worried about it. And I thought that like my prosthesis was exposed when it turned out to be like maybe just some dry skin. In that moment, like when I, I would catastrophize and... I was, you know, this is prosthesis. I would check the facts and be like, it's above the skin. It can't possibly be the prosthesis. Like that's physically impossible. And then engaging in some of the, like the what if. Okay, so what if it is? Well, if it is, then that means that I need to have another surgery. And I've had this surgery three times already. So I know what the surgery is like. And I know that I can get through it because I've done it before. And if it means that the prosthesis is infected, it needs to come out, then, you know, it's going to be a delayed period. Like, I know what the worst case is, and I've done it before. So even, like, if 10 years from now something goes wrong and I have another bone infection, as awful as it'll be, and I've done it before, I know what it is, gotten through it before, I can do it again. I have the skills, I have the tools, I have everything I need to manage if the worst case happens, but also I have the skills and the tools needed to manage the anxiety around what if the worst case happens on a day when everything's fine. And so when I, when these thoughts come up, because they do, I remind myself, but right now everything's fine. Like I'm okay. I'm doing well. My doctors are pleased. Everything's been fine. Everything is healed. On the outside, I have had no complications. This is the first surgery I did not have any complications. Things are fine. And so I remind myself, I talk to myself, I self-coach my way through. Everything's fine. And so the, these are strategies that I use. These are just a few of the strategies that I teach inside my workshops. But these are things that you can utilize like right away. Hey, I'm starting to catastrophize. What's something I can do right now? And the skill that I teach is the stop practice. And it's an acronym. So stop. So S is for stop. T is for take a breath. O is to observe. So noticing what's going on inside your head, what's going on inside your body, what's going on outside of you, what's, you know, you, the scenario, who are you with, what's going on. And then the P is to proceed mindfully. So taking all that information and making a choice. How do I want to respond? So when I notice that I'm starting to catastrophize, I stop. I take a breath. I'm like, I notice my thoughts. Oh, I'm starting to catastrophize. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety about this. And then I, you know, Decide how, like, okay, so I want to take several deep breaths. I want to talk to myself in a positive way. I want to remind myself that right now everything is fine. That I I can face whatever's going to come because I've faced everything else up to this moment. I've survived 100% of the things that have shown up so far. So I can, I can keep going. I can meet the next moment. I don't have to like it, to accept it, and to meet it. So these are just some of the ways that we can start practicing some mindfulness with regards to with regards to catastrophizing and 
I've had trouble with that word every time I've used it in this episode and I've used it so many times. Letting go of the judgments. So noticing catastrophizing, noticing when we ruminate, noticing these thoughts. We've I've talked about a few ways that we can learn how to stop the catastrophe to stop catastrophizing, including some of the skills, talk therapy, some mindfulness. These are all things that we can utilize. This is why I put them a lot of this stuff into my program because there is that gap, right? Talk therapy is wonderful. I love it, obviously. But, and then what? So teaching skills that you can use, like right now, like I'm catastrophizing. Charlene taught me this. This is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to like, and then doing it, doing the thing that we practice. We learn the skills when we don't need the skills. We can use the skills when we need the skills. That's how this kind of works. This is why I say like you practice all the time because by practicing it all the time, you'll remember it faster. And mindfulness is a way of being. It's retraining the brain. It's a whole new way of thinking and being. It takes time and it takes effort and it takes work, but it is possible to ease our anxiety. And so as I've been talking about throughout the podcast, I've shared a few different ways that you can learn how to start doing that for yourself. And we will con- now we will continue to talk about easing anxiety, but one of the main things that I find that is so helpful for learning how to sit with that feeling of discomfort that we've talked about today is my meditation practice, the welcome mat. It's one of my favorite practices and it's one of my clients and students' favorite practices because it teaches us how to welcome our thoughts, how to welcome our emotions, and how to welcome our sensations. So one of my clients who gets a lot of pain, she she puts the welcome mat out towards it. So when she's having a migraine or when I'm having a migraine, we can put the welcome mat out, like this metaphorical welcome mat, and, and welcome the pain. It's never about liking it. It's like, okay, here's the pain. The pain is here again. How can I make friends with this? Because like for me, as I shared, I get migraines so often and they're fairly debilitating and they, you know, the pain is awful. And they also make me feel sad and disappointed and like they bring up a lot of emotions and so putting the welcome at him like okay how can I be friends with this pain and so it might involve being a little kinder to myself with removing the judgments doing things that make me feel a little a little better cozy clothes a favorite meal simple things can be helpful in addition to like you know an epsom salt bath can help relax some of the tension in my body and my relaxing some of the tension in my body or relax some of the tension in my head but it's really about not beating myself up because of some of the things that i experience and that takes time and it takes work and it takes effort but it's a practice and that's one that we come back to again and again and so that is it for today's episode i will link in the show notes where you can sign up to download my welcome at meditation i invite you to give it a try and to practice it and to see what it's like and if you do, I would love it if you reached out to me. You can find me on Instagram at The Mindfulness Journey. And please send me a DM and let me know how it went. Notice what you thought as you do the practice. If you found this episode helpful, I would love it if you would write me a review and subscribe to my podcast. I post new episodes every Monday morning. This first season will be running for 12 episodes. This is only episode five. So we're almost halfway through the first season. We'll take a brief break before coming back for season two. I want to thank you for having me in your ears today, following along and listening to this episode. I hope that you gained something from it. And until next time, take care and be well. Bye everybody.